0: One of the things that I think is really important, irrespective of gender, is to say, like, if intermittent fasting is working for you, great, but if you fast and you have no energy and your sleep is terrible and you can't get through your day, then it's okay to give yourself permission to stop fasting and to kind of reevaluate things.
1: Welcome to the Seam Lund Podcast. I'm your host, Seam Lund, and today our guest is Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia is a nurse practitioner, TEDx speaker, and nutrition expert. She helps women with nutrition and intermittent fasting. This episode is brought to you by Katsu Training. Katsu bands incorporate blood flow moderation training that trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. When traditional weightlifting requires you to reach 70-80% of your one repetition maximum to stimulate muscle hypertrophy, then katsu bands achieve that effect only at 20-30%. So, it's perfect for treating injuries or used when you don't have access to heavier weights. Research about katsu bands also shows it lowers blood pressure, speeds up recovery from injury, Releases stem cells, builds muscle, burns fat, and prevents age-related muscle loss. These things are amazing, and I use them almost every day to recover from my heavier workouts. If you want to try out the Katsu bands, then use the code SEAM for a ten percent discount at katsu-global.com. That's S I I M at katsu-global.com. Cynthia, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks. I've really been looking forward to this.
1: Yeah,
2: me too. And uh, maybe, maybe like you, we can start off with uh, like. Talking about, uh, you have like a big a TED talk where you talk about intermittent fasting, and it's, you know, a lot of people are, you know, uh, knowing you for about that. So, yeah, how did you get, or like, how did you give it like a TED talk about fasting itself?
0: Well, I mean, it's a great story. I'm an introvert. And in 2018, I told my husband that I thought doing a TED talk would be a great way to, you know, work through some of my introversion. And so I was offered my first TED talk um also focused on women's health and uh, around maybe about 2 weeks later I was offered a second and for your listeners if they're not familiar with the way TED talks work you can't give the same talk twice so I looked at my husband and I said what do I know a lot about that I can you know essentially write up uh, a mock up of a TED talk really quickly and he said oh, intermittent fasting so it was really that um, that simple you know knowing that it was a, a topic that I spoke a lot about with patients and with clients and just on social media, and of course, uh, you know, the following year in 2019, I gave that talk, which I didn't realize that intermittent fasting would be the most Googled or searched um, nutritional kind of paradigm or strategy, and so I think that's what drove a lot of interest in the talk itself, and obviously, you know, they they always say that, you know, one talk can change your life, and it absolutely did.
2: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, it's uh, innovative fasting itself has become uh, pretty uh, popular, at least like over the past few years. It's like you can see all these different trends uh, in regards to like keto or carnivore or vegan diets uh, coming going, but uh, fasting is almost always like that something that is uh, always there or like people are interested in it regardless of the type of diet that they're doing.
0: Well, and I think so many people are just frankly tired of gimmicks and they they want to do something that's sustainable. They want to have control. I mean, I, I, over... Twenty plus years of working in healthcare, I've seen so many fads, as you mentioned, or things that are popular at one time or another. And in, in many many ways, uh, you know, fasting, despite people thinking it's a fad or thinking that it's novel or new, it's really something that dates back to biblical times. And I have to remind people that it's part of nearly every major religion, and on many levels, it really is something that is intrinsically the way our bodies are designed to thrive. Uh, eating less often, as opposed to, uh, you know, here in the United States, there's definitely a focus on eating frequently to stoke your metabolism, as well as many other diet dogmas that I hope will will go to diet heaven and just die. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ultimately, will just go away.
2: Yeah, well, we, we hope for that. Uh, but uh, like, how did you get into, into fasting itself? Uh, like, um, what, what, what are the things that you tried before? And uh, what made you choose fasting?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think to for full transparency, I have always been very active, very naturally um, thin and fit. And it wasn't until I got into my early forties that I recognized that something was changing. And so, you know, I'd had babies and bounced back and never had problems. And so I was definitely at a point in my life where I had an extra five to 10 pounds. And when you're pretty petite, that makes a big difference. And, you know, changing the way I was eating wasn't working, exercising harder wasn't working. And in the course of one week, um, I remember it was January of 2015, I had three different people, three different women in my life who just casually brought up intermittent fasting. And in my typical fashion, I think I dove into, you know, existing research and read uh, Jason Fung's book The Complete Guide to Fasting and so I thought to myself okay if, if there's a physician that's advocating for this there's some there's some merit and right. so that's when I started doing it initially for body composition but uh, I found out pretty quickly that I had so much mental clarity um, my digestion just felt better I had less bloating and on many levels it was you know one of the first things that I started to really think like this is the missing piece for so many men and women not just, middle-aged women but certainly for a lot of people is at this meal frequency that I certainly had been telling my patients you know eat every 2 to 3 hours stoke your metabolism eat before and after exercise that's so critical god forbid you go to the gym and work out fasted i came to realize that that really wasn't the case and so i was very i very humbly started to really dive deeper into a lot of different uh, methodologies and i was frankly very surprised and I, and for uh, on many levels, I think that that was one of many reasons why I started to very openly speak out against the diet dogma, nutritional dogma that I had been schooled with. You know, I trained at a big research institution both for undergrad and grad school, and you know, very well respected. And and I started to kind of reflect back on like what was my training like, and I and it was like, is it any wonder that healthcare providers are giving their patients really bad advice about nutrition? And then secondarily, the meal frequency piece, uh, I believe, is largely contributory to why we were spiking insulin and staying in this fat storage kind of mode, unknowingly suggesting to all these patients that this is the way that they were going to lose weight and realizing we really were creating the perfect storm for them to remain kind of metabolically inflexible and diseased, quite frankly. So that's where it started from. So I always say good intentions mm. and then realizing this really could be applicable to so many other people.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think like a lot of people do have a, like a similar story that they first like try it out either out of like uh, curiosity or desperation. And uh, then they kind of see the results and they like it or uh, mm-hmm. and then they kind of uh, start to learn more about like why, why does it work, et cetera. And uh, what is the reasons? what are the benefits of fasting like beyond weight loss and body composition and yeah that's where they are you know uh either like well yeah like most a lot of people i do know uh stick to it at least in some or form, and like a very small minority tend to go back to uh like a more frequent eating but they may you know do it at least like they overcome this fear of uh skipping meals and the fear of uh having uh, this time where you're not eating sort of said like it's like a huge psychological win that you gain actually from it if you just that Try it and see some of the results.
0: Well, and what I think is interesting is that most of us, when we get up in the morning, aren't even hungry. And so when I was growing up, my mother, who's Italian, was always forcing me to eat breakfast before I went to school. And and we were speaking about this recently. And I said, I've always been that person who never really wanted to eat breakfast anyway. And I have a child that's the same way. And so Mm -hmm. I don't force him to eat breakfast. I always say, you know, listen to your body. If you obviously, if you do a very demanding swimming workout before you go to school, you need to eat uh, because you burn so many so many calories. But uh, most other instances, I mean, he'll he hasn't eaten yet. It's eleven fifteen, and and I think that the message is not to suggest that this is necessarily an appropriate strategy for children. I have teenagers, but I think for most of us, if we're aware of what true intrinsic hunger feels like, if we follow that. We realize we aren't hungry as often as we think we are. Um, and, and that differentiation I think is really, really important. And much to your point, you know, this this mindset that people are gonna starve if they mm-hmm. fast. In fact, that was, I think, the first thing I had a family member, a well-meaning family member, tell me, Well, really, you're just advocating starvation. I was like, No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> never. I love to eat. And most people right. that practice intermittent fasting do as well. But unfortunately, that's kind of this boogeyman kind of mentality that. People become fearful, like they think something untoward is going to happen to them if they don't eat more yeah. frequently.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, uh, maybe part of it has to do with like you know uh, our parents uh, and grandparents. They definitely didn't have like that much abundance of food all the time. <laughs> they have like this mindset that yeah, food is scarce and you can't waste anything away. You have to eat everything and. Yeah, like actually, actually eat more as much as possible all the time so that, you know, you never know when you're going to get your next meal or something. Uh, so, yeah, like this uh, scarcity mindset, the mindset, uh, you know, it has like evolutionary advantage for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But this year, like just in the modern world uh, where you are surrounded by this, uh, not even like just the opportunities of food, but just the food that you eat is just that much higher in calories. And yeah. uh, whenever you do eat, eventually over the course of days. Uh, you just uh, reach this uh, calorie surplus uh, where you're going to get you know, obese and uh, other health problems come from that. So yeah, it's just the uh, overabundance is kind of the problem.
0: Well, and I, I agree. And if I think, you know, when I talk to patients about the fact that before refrigeration, you know, people uh, had a very different kind of perspective on food. And there was a lot of people who died of famine and many people who uh, you know, they, they would go out and they would kill an animal and, and they would butcher the animal and, you know, do the things that they could. And, and they would either have this feast or famine cycling. Like you might mm-hmm. have, you might have, st- you know, you might have a, a wild animal one day and then you're eating twigs and berries for a couple of days or as long as a week. And so our bodies are really designed to weather, uh, periods in our lives when there is not as much food, but I agree with you and this kind of hyper palatable, highly processed, world that many of us are living in, um, food abundance and a lot of food like substances is what the norm is. And, and I think that, you know, for me, it's been very interesting. We just relocated from one city to another and, you know, while making our journey, uh, with our children, you know, having to stop off. And again, I have teenage boys who are very athletic and so they eat more frequently than my husband and I do. And it was very interesting, you know, I I remind them, you know, the good, better, best kind of mindset, like I hate and I don't like to eat in a, you know, like a fast food restaurant. So we avoid those. But, you know, if we pull off to get gas and, you know, one of them is starving, it's like, all right, pick a piece of fruit and get a piece of cheese or, or, you know, try to find the healthiest option with, you know, what is available. But if you look at the amount of brightly colored packaging and, Tantalizing colors. I mean, is it any wonder that so many people have really been fooled into thinking that these food-like substances are actually beneficial? When if, when if, if but nothing else, they're really designed for profitability and you know this drive for addiction, which is a whole separate topic. But um, I always like to to kind of point out the fact that if you're eating more nat- foods in a more natural state you are less likely to feel compelled to continue eating them. You will actually feel satiated and um, full and uh, less likely to continue eating. You'll kind of just say, okay, I've had my steak and I've had my broccoli and maybe I had a potato and then I'm done Um, Mm. as opposed to, you know, eating McDonald's or Burger King or whatever junk food people are, are enjoying.
2: Yeah. 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 That's definitely like entire science goes behind there of making the food a very uh, hyper palatable and very uh, tasty. So did you have like any uh, growing up? Did you have like any uh, of these, uh, or like how did you have like any uh, bad relationships with uh, like junk food, or uh, were you addicted to sugar or something like that? Because like nowadays, a lot of uh, kids, I would imagine, are mm-hmm. having like these kinds of things.
0: Yeah, no, I was really fortunate because my mom, uh, my mom's mom was German, and my grandfather was Italian, and so my grandparents grew up during the Depression. And uh, my grandfather was a first generation American. And so they did a lot of, they they had an amazing garden and they made everything from scratch. And my grandparents had five kids and both worked full time. I don't know how they managed to, you know, make like real whole meals. So I grew up. Baking bread and had us eating um, organ meat, which my brother and I didn't love. Uh, and was very focused on like vegetables, you know, clean protein, we ate a variety of what would now be considered to be more wild wilditarian meats. Mm. Uh, and I was very fortunate that my parents put a, a huge priority on, you know, eating, eating at home and eating whole meals. And even when I went to college, I remember my father saying to me, it was very important to him that I didn't go to college and, you know, suddenly, you know, gain the, the dreaded freshman 15. I don't know if you have that that phrase um, in Estonia, but where a lot of people go off to college and maybe they've eaten healthy at home with their parents and then they have access, unfettered access to junk. So I've always been very kind of mindful. So no, I would say we're, when I look at my childhood, I was really very fortunate that I, I've always had a very healthy relationship with food, thankfully. I would say probably the only thing that has not served me well is dairy. And I used to eat dairy, I don't anymore. But I found dairy very addicting. Um, you know, the cheese, the ice cream, and so when I stopped consuming that, um, that definitely was was hugely beneficial. But it's like I don't really have any vices, and I think sometimes people find that kind of boring. But I tell them, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I've always kind of looked at food as fuel, mm. and not as much like an emotional. I don't have an emotional um, relationship with food. I'm much more of a. If I'm stressed, I'll go exercise, or I'll right. walk, or I'll listen to music. So, I'm, I'm probably part of the minority because I do see quite a few women in particular that have these very strong emotional connections to, um, you know, especially carbs and, you know, carbs and fats together, which are kind of a tantalizing combination. It's very hard to, um, you know, it's, it's very easy rather to overeat those things. So, I have to give a lot of credit to my parents that they instilled some really good habits and, you know, we learned how to cook at a young age. I was a latchkey kid because my mom worked. And so I, you know, from the age of eight was expected to, you know, kind of start dinner and get dinner prepared for my brother, my mom and I. So, you know, that was definitely one of those benefits, but I I do know that that's probably not the norm. And my husband would probably laugh. And if you were to ask him, does Cynthia have any vices? He'd probably say she loves dark chocolate, but Mm. (laughs) even that I have to kind of you know, I don't buy a lot of it because it's so easy to overeat it. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. Even, even then, like uh, dark chocolate itself has like some benefits. It's a very high source of polyphenols, so <laughs> we can still uh, make the argument uh, for, yes. for for some of the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's you know glad to hear that uh, being like like it's so more almost being just more involved with a food mm-hmm. process uh, that is kind of the key. That instead of buying it out uh, or taking takeout all the time you're, you know, um, actually uh, more in touch or more connected to the food source and uh, the cooking process, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the, because of that, you also, um, you know, uh, you're not, not getting over overnourishment. You're not getting d- that many calories from the food and the fast food that just you know, combines it together with the oils and uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, a lot of people have become too uh, far away from the process of uh, making the food itself and that has, you know, led to this uh, consumption.
0: Well, and I think it's, it's unfortunate that we have largely been conditioned to believe that cooking is too hard and that therefore we need to lean on these processed food industries and companies to make our lives easier uh, when, in essence, it's making us sicker and sicker. And, you know, seed oils, because um, I, I know that we've talked about that on my podcast, seed oils are just about the worst thing that we can have in our diets. And I, I think I saw Ben Bickman recently discuss that in the United States, the most consumed fat in our diets is soybean oil. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are super savvy and they know the dangers of seed oils. And so my teenagers, they know if we're in the grocery store and they want a chip and I'll be very clear, I'm all about, um, you know, finding healthier options. You know, if people want a chip or they want something sweet. And so they know, I'm like, if there's a, if there's a seed oil in there, don't even put mm. it in the cart. Like, right. and that means there are very few black, b- very few brands that are, that are not, you know, focused on very large portions um, very few options that are out there, and you know we're the ones that ask questions. When we go to a restaurant, I'm like, ninety five percent of the time you go to a restaurant, that's probably what they're serving. Either they're preparing, they sometimes will soak your meat in mm. seed oils, or they're using it as a salad dressing. And so you really just have to ask the questions. My kids are of course mortally embarrassed when I do, but um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. that's my job as your parents since you're teenagers to embarrass you frequently.
2: Yeah,
0: but I, I think it's definitely one of those things that, you know. Through education, and the more people understand and know, the more likely they are, the more encouraged they'll be to actually cook at home. And and cooking doesn't have to be complicated. Like, I'm not making seven course dinners in my house. It's generally a lot of protein and some type of non starchy vegetable for my husband and I. And then the kids will get some type of starch because they can justify, they can justify with the amount of physical activity they do that they can have a bit more for sure.
2: Mm, Right. Yeah, and uh, but let's talk about the fasting as well. So, you know, what do do you uh, like have any let's say guidelines or principles that you uh, follow uh, when it comes to differences between uh, men and women when they're doing fasting?
0: Yeah, you know, and and this is kind of a there's a lot of misinformation on social media in particular about. Intermittent fasting being dangerous for women. And and so I I like to remind people that there's kind of differing philosophies. Like if you are a man or a postmenopausal woman, you're gonna probably be able to intermittent fast more easily than someone that's still in their cycling or childbearing years. And a lot of that's governed by the fluctuations in hormones. So when I'm talking to younger women, women under the age of 35 versus women that are like 35 to 50, I, I have to kind of talk to them about things they need to look out for and so, um, I'm not an advocate of women fasting the week before their cycle. Um, that's generally a time I'll tell them to you know back off. You can certainly have digestive rest. You know, 12 to 14 hours of, of you know not eating or digestive rest is certainly reasonable. Uh, I like them to use their menstrual cycle as a barometer, meaning you know if your cycle is still coming every month and there are no issues, then fasting is probably working for you. But uh, you know you talk a lot about this, you know, hormetic stress, you know, her- intermittent fasting is a, is a hermetic stressor and it, there's a very fine line for women that are still in the reproductive years of too much or too little. And so trying to find that balance. And, and I, I think women that focus on the first three weeks of their, their cycle generally do fine with intermittent fasting. And, you know, the women that are younger, like under the age of 35, if they're already very lean, I don't think this is something they should be doing every day. I mean, they could certainly do it a couple times a week if someone has a lot of weight to lose. And, and this is something that I think is now being more substantiated by, you know, I heard Ted Naiman talking about this recently, which definitely aligns with this. If someone has 30 plus pounds to lose, they can do longer fast because they have plenty of stored energy. But if you're already 115 pounds and you're a lean woman and you're doing a lot of, um, you know, training. You want to be very careful. You know, you know, it, it's a very different kind of philosophy mm. in how I would instruct someone to to train. So, what I would what I typically say is that postmenopausal women, generally speaking, do very well with intermittent fasting. If you have a lot of weight to lose, intermittent fasting is a great strategy. If you're still getting your menstrual cycle, still in those very fertile years, you have to be a little more careful. And then. The gray area is 35 to 50. If women are still getting in their cycle and they're heading into perimenopause, that five to seven years preceding menopause, they really have to dial in on you know, sleep and stress management and their nutrition. And this is when sometimes people, and I was one of those people that got kind of stuck. Um, you have to really make sure that you're prioritizing the lifestyle piece. And, and if you do those things, intermittent fasting can work really well. So that's that's typically how I kind of look at it. that, you know it depends on your age. It depends on how lean you are. Obviously, if you're obese, you've got yeah. a lot of stored energy that you can work off of. Um, I, I think the challenge with uh, women that are that are very obese or have, you know 25, 30 plus pounds to lose is that they're probably not very efficient. They're very metabolically inefficient. And so, the, you you can't go from zero to 60. So if you're a couch potato eating a standard American diet and you're you're obese, it's, it may take you a bit of time to be able to tap into those fat stores for energy. And you have to give yourself some grace. Cause I I think there's a lot of, the other piece about social media, a blessing and a curse is that there's a lot of shaming. Like there are 32 year old fit pros that are women who've never been obese a day in their life, shaming women because they can't lose weight easily and yet they they don't understand that hormonal piece that's such a large proportion of why people will struggle um, with weight loss resistance. So Mm. to answer your, to give you a very long winded uh, explanation, women can fast uh, really dependent on their body composition, their age, the stage of life they're in, but I do believe women can fast safely. They just have to be attuned to the cues that their bodies are giving them.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. and. Yeah, the, the, there are some differences, uh, like not necessarily even, not necessarily between genders, but just the bodies themselves. Mm-hmm. Like the same can apply to men. Like uh, if, uh, if a man is uh, super obese, then they can for sure fast for longer. Whereas if they're very lean, then they're going to get like this uh, low thyroid much faster and uh, like the uh, other negative side effects. So you always have to just tailor it to the individual, not necessarily uh, like the gender or, um, or the age even. So they say like, yeah, everyone has their different tolerance as well as adaptation. And also, like requirements. So, if you are like super physically active, then it doesn't really make sense for you to uh, try to uh, fast for that long because, yeah, like you need to eat those calories to uh, refuel yourself and repair the muscle, et cetera. So, yeah, it's very uh, context dependent to like the individual.
0: And I love that you talk about bioindividuality because that's something that I don't think is stressed enough um, with kind of traditional perspectives that people, we kind of, look at all patients the same, like every patient who's X age should be able to take this medication. And we've come to realize that we're all so unique. And one of the things that I think is really important, irrespective of gender is to say, like if intermittent fasting is working for you, great. But if you fast and you have no energy and your sleep is terrible and you can't get through your day, then it's okay to give yourself permission to stop fasting and to kind Mm -hmm. of reevaluate things. Very much the same way, like I feel like people can be so... Um, hard on themselves. And and I think, you know, it's people are so kind of desperate to find a strategy that will work sustainably for them that they get really upset if things don't seem to work. And I'm like, listen, just reevaluate things in a couple months, you know, you know, enjoy breastfeeding your child or, you know, deal with the stress of a move or something that is, you know, huge for you. And give yourself the opportunity to really pause and reevaluate things later. Like, it doesn't mean if it doesn't work right now, it'll never work. It -hmm. might just be that at this point in time, your body is trying desperately to tell you, like, give me a timeout. Like, just let's stop and reevaluate things before we continue doing this.
2: It's like strange that um, once you are in the routine, even if you're doing one particular, like a fasting window, then changing that is also uh, like uh, uncomfortable. It creates resistance. Like people don't want to change uh, just for the sake of not changing, uh, yeah. even if, even if it's like something that they enjoy or something that they don't enjoy. So yeah, it's a, it's you always has to have this like adaptable mindset and be something, somewhat flexible and be able to adjust it. If you're not seeing the results, then you need to kind of change it a little bit and, uh, yeah. and yeah, give everybody like a different kind of a stimulus.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because um, in 2019, I had a very lengthy hospitalization and, I went like 13 days without being able to eat, and, and since mm-hmm. that time, I have honestly not done a really long fast any more than 24 hours, and so I'm pretty continuously asked, you know, why why haven't you done longer fast? And I just said, you know, I don't know if it's if it's an if it's kind of a psychological you know thing after I, what I went through, where obviously I, I couldn't I physically couldn't eat for that amount of time, um, but for me, it, it no longer serves me to do really long fasts. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Much to your point oh. about kind of reevaluating. And so for me, I, I do anywhere from 16 to 20 hours a day. Sometimes once a week, I'll do a 24 hour fast. Some days I'll break my fast at 13 hours. If I'm really hungry and I hmm. really was in the gym lifting weights and I come home and I'm like my blood sugar, cause I wear a continuous glucose monitor. My blood sugar is, you know, 74 and I'm very hungry, completely fine to break my fast early. I'm not rigid. And then, I, and I'm sure you ascribe to the same philosophy that being flexible with yourself is really critically important because we're not the same day to day, hour to hour. And it's important that we remain really attuned to that.
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't know about the 13 hour or 13 day fast. So uh, like, uh, I'm curious to know, like uh, I imagine you lost a bunch of weight. So what was like recovery protocol after like, how did you uh, regain your metabolism and weight?
0: Oh, it was, that was kind of like a nightmarish. I almost died. Um, So in, February of 2019, I went to the hospital with like the worst abdominal pain I'd ever had. And and to make a very long story short, I had a ruptured appendix, Mm. but at that point I had already, I I had something called pancolitis. So my entire length of my colon was inflamed. And at that point they had considered taking me to surgery that night. And I just begged them not to, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to wear a colostomy bag. And for anyone who's listening, that's not familiar with that. If they take your colon out, uh, you have to wear a bag um, where your, your food digestion or the food contents will go. It's almost like you know wearing a a pouch, uh, oh. which is on many levels is really unpleasant. And so during that 13 day hospitalization, I ended up with a lot of complications, and so I lost 15 pounds. And I'm normally about 115, 118 pounds. So for me, it was such a substantial loss of weight mm-hmm. that um, you know when I got home after 13 days, um, my digestion was just wrecked. Uh, the only thing that I could tolerate was. Uh, bone broth, and I could tolerate like boiled meat. That was it. Hmm. And for anyone that's ever done a carnivore diet, uh, sometimes that's the easiest, most digestible food for your body to eat. Forget about vegetables or fruit or anything that had fiber in it. And really that's where I stayed for about nine months. But to speak to your other point, um, obviously I had 15 pounds to put back on. And I remember... I had never really in my entire life experienced hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. But I remember about a week after I had got home from the hospital, I had to come back because I had a, a fistula and I had a drain put in uh, and, and they were monitoring this every week because they wanted to pull it. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't at a point, I, wasn't, um, I was still very sick so they couldn't take me to surgery. And so every week I would go into this interventional radiology suite and they would determine whether or not the fistula had resolved. And just walking from the car, into this radiology suite, I remember I was dizzy and it didn't matter how much I drank, it didn't matter how much I rested, I was so weak and my blood sugar was so variable. I remember telling my mom, like, I now understand how badly diabetics must feel, you know, really brittle diabetics. Um, And so, you know, it started with primarily a carnivore-ish kind of diet, a lot of rest, um, a a lot of, you know, conventional wisdom of, you know, I had lost so much muscle mass because, um, that's what my body was breaking down for fuel. I mean, they gave me about a week and then they put me on, um, an IV it's called total parenteral nutrition, which is affectionately referred to as the bag of crap. I didn't want right. it. Uh, and so when I was home, it was really just, you know, building my strength back up. And it probably took about three weeks to feel like I could actually like walk around and not feel like I was just so weak the irony is I did that second Ted talk 27 days after I came out of the hospital. And I just don't think things had, my brain hadn't fully appreciated what my body had been through, but to get to the intermittent fasting piece, I did an intermittent fast for about three months and it took probably, I had my appendix out six weeks after I left the hospital and it took another six weeks before my surgeon would even let me do body weight exercise. So I was out of the gym, not doing fasting for a period of time. And then slowly over six months, I was able to build back muscle, not fat, but build back muscle. But it was like, I, I don't think I'd ever appreciated how much my health going into that emergent urgent situation really benefited me because my surgeon had said more than once, like if you were the average 47 year old, I don't know if you would have pulled through. So well. You know, it really speaks to the fact that our health has so much to do uh, with, you know, how well we can bounce back. And um, yeah, it took, I would say probably a solid six months afterwards to feel like I could actually, you know, get back in the gym, lift heavier than I had been. And you know, nine months of eating carnivore I mean, I, I remember it was probably at 18 months after I left the hospital that I could actually eat a Brussels sprout. And I've never been so excited. Like I love vegetables. To <laughs> so not be able to eat vegetables or even like a salad was, I, listeners probably think that sounds crazy, but I remember thinking like how grateful I was when I could mm-hmm. finally get to a point where I could actually eat something that had fiber in it and not, you know, not have my body just completely um, let me know that that was not, not the direction it wanted me to go in.
2: Wow. Well, that's a crazy story. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sounds like a, bit of, like a yeah, difficult uh, thing to pull through. And, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Like I mean, there's the, certainly, yeah. sorry, I was going to say there's certainly people that go through worse and I always sit in complete gratitude that I got through it. I had a great team and, hmm. um, you know, obviously I, I knew the things I needed to do to heal, which certainly helped. And, you know, I, I I'm just eternally grateful because there could have been a very different outcome. And and I recognize that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. But uh, did you feel like during the uh, the thirteen days, um, like um, how was your like hunger levels? Did you get hungry or such? because like people think that you know the longer you fast, then the hungrier you're going to get, and like uh, by day three or day four you're like absolutely soaring. <laughs> but that, that's yeah. not like usually the case.
0: No, well it's interesting. So the first week I was just so thirsty because part of the small bowel obstruction and the ruptured appendix was that I was vomiting constantly and they couldn't control the vomiting. So I was just, I was so dehydrated. They couldn't keep enough fluid in me. So the first week I was distracted by being thirsty constantly. Like I would wait for the ice chips to to melt a little bit. And the nurses never wanted me to do this. And then I would drink them and then I would throw up again. And so it was this kind of vicious cycle with all these different tubes. But on week two, I do distinctly remember I dreamed about burgers. I dreamed about a juicy hamburger all the time. That's all I thought about. And I remember telling my husband and he was like, you're not even like a big burger person on a good day. And I was like, that was all I thought about was meat. So I was definitely hungry week two. And then I remember being very grateful the first time I had that, like the first thing they gave me, I think was bone broth. And uh, I was so grateful to have that, like it tasted, I mean, this sounds silly, it It tasted magical because by then I was so, ready to eat um and i was at a point where my body was saying yes you know you can eat some nourishment the bone (laughs) broth was delicious like to me it tasted like the most amazing dinner i'd ever had at an amazing restaurant so Mm. yeah it's amazing how your body will. i definitely was thirsty and then i got hungry but it took about a week like i don't recall being hungry at all that first week i think because i was just so sick
2: yeah yeah like the even like salted water has like a taste to it yeah if you're you're fasting it has like unique unique like savory taste
0: yeah no and i remember asking the nurse i was like can you give me salt and she was like no you've got (laughs) salt in your IV." i was like i just want salt Uh, which is like that's going to make you more thirsty i was like no no it really won't but that's that kind of conventional mindset that salt makes you thirsty i'm like well okay so
2: (laughs) right uh but um what what would, the, what would like your, your viewpoint on uh, the differences between uh, age groups, like young people, uh, children, uh, and the elderly? Like, a, what, what how would you uh, you know, use intermittent fasting for these different ages?
0: Well, I don't generally recommend fasting for kids. I I think that you know from the perspective of if if a child's obese, because I get a lot of these questions, what would you do if a child's obese? I'm like, put them on a low carb diet. I mean, mm. you know, lower carb, less processed carbs. Up their protein. Um, I think that's reasonable. But I think when children are still growing, even if they're teens, like I have a five foot 10, 15 year old who's still growing, and I would never want him to restrict the, the macros that he's consuming. So with kids and people that are still growing, no. Um, I, I think you can change nutritionally what they're consuming to make better food choices if they're dealing with metabolic uh, instability or inflexibility or they're obese. Um, when it comes to the elderly, and so I took a lot of flack. <laughs> in my talk, because I said, if you're older than 70, you shouldn't fast, but it's from the context of most of the 70 year olds that I knew in my patient practice were fragile and diabetic. And so I think it's always in the context of the individual. So do I know 75 year olds that hike mountains? Yes. I have an uncle who does that. He's the fittest 70. He's probably the fittest man I know over the age of 55. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's incredibly fit, obviously always in the context of You know, are you aware? Are you physically active? Are you aware of what your blood sugar feels like when it's too low? You know, do you make good food choices? So, and that could really apply to any age. So, you know, usually when I say my absolutes, kids, frail individuals of any age, people who've been hospitalized, anyone who has an eating disorder, I take a lot of flack for this on social media too, but. I see a lot of fit pros that will hide their anorexia and in intermittent fasting, like very proudly. And they look so emaciated. I'm like, you're not eating any food. <laughs> you're not kidding anyone. Right. Um, you know, they really have to be careful. They have to be working with someone that, uh, can provide the emotional support if they are binge eating or have a history of that or bulimic or anorexic. Um, I also think about people that are just, metabolically so unstable. And I had a lot of these patients, they've got kidney disease, they have cardiovascular disease. um, You know, they're diabetic. I would say, get your healthcare provider involved, you know, make sure you're having a conversation. I think most healthcare providers don't know enough about intermittent fasting and they genuinely are curious. A lot of them are very curious. They want their patients to have wins. There are plenty of people that have vascular disease, renal disease that do fine with fasting, but they need to like, kind of hook in their healthcare provider. So that they're all on the same page because they may need adjustments in their medications. And that that's oftentimes what happens. So they're the blood pressure, their oral, you know, hypoglycemics, their um, other medications need adjustments because they start to lose weight, which is a wonderful thing. So, but yeah, generally kids, I, I, I get a mm-hmm. lot of questions about that. I'm like, not a fan. And my kids know that ironically, I'm like, don't tell anyone that I tell you to fast. <laughs> yeah. That would be a problem. That would yeah. definitely be a problem.
2: Yeah, I agree that uh, they don't need to do like a specific fasting routine or window, uh, but yeah, they probably should learn to differentiate like their actual hunger from the cravings and from like just Mm -hmm. uh, just snacking on junk food and that sort of thing. So that is definitely like a very useful skill to have. And yeah, uh, yeah, like just, just eat a whole foods diet and, you know. Fortunately, like children's metabolism are still, let's say, um, working to a certain extent uh, properly, and you mm-hmm. can save them uh, quite easily yeah, <laughs> compared to has- like someone who is in their let's say sixties or something. Then their yeah. metabolism is already slow, slow down, and uh, their thyroid is low, etc. So it's much harder for them to change without yeah. any like drastic intervention. Whereas with children, they just need to like children just burn so many calories already, and uh, you just need to make some of the better food choices, and they're naturally they're yeah. gonna like start to lose weight and get healthier. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I have one child who um, my older son who plays football and I'm always harassing him. I'm like, you know, he's, ve- he's very much a carnivore ish kid. Like he really like, will really focus on meat, but he likes lean meat. And I'm like, you need some fat. So I'm like, I don't care if you eat an avocado. I don't care if you have some cheese, you need some fat in your diet. So he finds he's hungry all the time. And I'm, I always say to him, you need more fat in your diet. And then my younger son who likes to cook, who's a swimmer, who also burns a tremendous amount of calories, he will be very thoughtful when he puts meals together and he likes to cook. So he'll get in the kitchen and he's my kid that generally doesn't eat breakfast unless he's swimming that morning. Um, and he'll just, he'll whip up. Like, I mean, I would say he's like my gourmand kid, you know, he'll pick out herbs and, you know, he's very, very kind of creates these very intricate meals. I always say, you know, one day you're going to make your you know future wife very happy that, you know, you enjoy cooking and, and you take great pride in it. Um, and he'll spend like an hour, you know, making his lunch. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. knock yourself out. <laughs> but yeah, no kids, kids are unique in that their, their baseline metabolisms are, I mean, they're growing. That's really what it comes down to, especially with you know young boys, they've got so much, you know, extra circulating testosterone and, you know, they, they can hand it, like I'll watch my kids make a, a massive bowl of rice and they'll put some meat on top of it. And I'm like, I would never tell an adult to ever eat that much rice, but, you know, they're building muscle and they really mm. like they're in the gym and they're lifting and all the things that they're doing. I'm like, they can get away with that, but I would not suggest that for a middle-aged man or for woman in most instances um, it would probably backfire on them.
2: Right. So, so yeah, I would, I would imagine then you're more a proponent of a, like a lower carb approach for most people.
0: I am um, although I'm very sensitive to the fact that um, I, I don't restrict carbs for my kids. Um, you know, my husband still does martial arts. And so, you know, I, I always say like, when we sit down at dinner, my dinner may look a little bit different because there might be uh, a lot less carbohydrate on my plate. But I think for a lot of people, cycling your carbs is a great way to kind of kick yourself out of ketosis. You know, I wear a continuous glucose monitor. And so I'm always doing experiments to see what my body tolerates best. I'm sometimes frankly surprised. There are some things like as an example, um, tropical fruits oftentimes get demonized. Like, oh my god, don't ever eat a banana. Don't eat a mango. Don't eat pineapple. I can eat all of those things with a negligible insulin response. However, if I eat, um, you know, rice, completely different uh, response. You know, my blood sugar will really spike, even if it's a small amount. In fact, we've done. My kids think this is amazing. Like, we'll do experiments with amounts. Like, this is a quarter cup. This is half a cup. There's a cup. It's still the same response for me. So. A lot of it goes back to bio individuality. And I think that people really have to experiment to find what works best for their bodies. What I see is, I think low-carb for many people, and the word low-carb means something different to everyone because you get some people that are in the hardcore keto camp that are like low-carb is 50 grams of carbs or under but then, you know, I talk to other people and they're like, for some people, if they're having 300 to 400 grams of carbs a day, going under hundred might be really low carb for them. So mm. I always say it's always in the context. I find that I've been low carb for so long that I generally like to stay under 50 or 75, you know, a really high carb day for me. It's not that I feel bad. It's just, I have to be really deliberate on a higher carb day to get those carbs where, uh, where I want to get them. And so that sometimes can be my kids think it's funny as they're watching me trying to put things together. I'm like, watch this protein smoothie. I'm going to throw a banana in and then I'm going to do this and, you know, trying to find some, some balance, but it's so, it's so bio-individual, like what might work for you may not work for me, may not work for someone else. It's the same age. And so a bit of experimentation and having a CGM, that's probably, Mm. uh, you know, that biohack for me has been the most enlightening because I, I think there's this common, Misconception, um, and I say this with reverence because I got skewered on social media last week by a very famous vegan cardiologist who will remain nameless, uh, because uh, you know they're stating the the research doesn't support using CGMs in people that are, don't have diabetes, and I was like, that's complete crap. Um, I think it's one of the most invaluable tools people can use, irrespective of you know yeah. whether they're insulin resistant, diabetic, or metabolically flexible, and why? Why would you not empower people to, you know, get data or information that can help them make better food choices?
2: Yeah, yeah. Like if you didn't measure it, then you wouldn't know if you had diabetes in the first place. So, <laughs> like, yeah, what, you, no, what you don't measure, I, you don't manage. So,
0: yeah, and I think a lot of the the hormonal fluctuations that happen, uh, you know, for women and men, you know, with age. You know, men go through andropause, women go through menopause. Uh, Women suddenly that are, you know, have been doing all the right things become physiologically more prone to insulin resistance. And so they'll say, oh my God, I had no idea that my fasting blood sugar was 120. And I'm thinking I'm doing all the right things when really it should be, you know, between, you know, 70 and 90. And, uh, you know, I just think, you know, through knowledge comes power and, and therefore it can just be a really invaluable tool for people to utilize.
2: Hmm. Yeah, speaking of the CGM, then um, so how how long have you been using it, and what what's the biggest uh, like insights you gained?
0: Yeah, since November, um, I just decided that if I was going to be suggesting that my clients and patients wear them, that I should probably dive into using them. And and quite honestly, you know, I, I took a break probably for a month in between, but I I just felt like you know, given all the unique things that were happening in my my life and my world at that time, I was like, I really want to know, like, what's the net impact of not good sleep, stress, food choices? Um, you know, I, I'm at a point now where, you know, I started taking some testosterone because my testosterone levels were low and we're working on all the other things. And I was like, I'm really curious, like, I want to know what happens. And so what's been wonderfully beautiful for me is Uh, the net impact of my exercise is not, it it doesn't spike my blood sugar. I mean, so I hear a lot of people talking about the fact, oh, I had this really vigorous workout and my blood sugar spiked really high. Well, that doesn't happen for me. Um, The net impact of a lot of foods that I assumed would have an impact on my blood sugar negatively were fine. Like I mentioned, tropical fruits for some reason, I don't eat copious amounts, let me be clear. But I was like, oh, if I eat a mango, I'm curious to see what'll happen. And it's like a blip, but you give me a plantain, totally the opposite. Plantains spike my blood sugar. Um, I've come of find out a lot of grains do, um, you know, negligible impact of, you know, protein and healthy fats. And so it, I actually started flipping my macros, a little more healthy fat portions, a little smaller protein portions. I'm still hitting my macros that I, that I aim for, but I'm dividing it into three meals in order to do that as opposed to two. Um, and so, you know, I, I think those kinds of small kind of subtle shifts can make, Um, you know, my sleep is better. Uh, You know, I'm able to hit my targets, you know, I'm able to go up on my weights. And so for me, just personally, I feel like it's, um, it's another layer of information that validates the lifestyle choices that I kind of ascribe to. Will I get to a point where I'll need to take a break? Yeah, I I don't think I'll wear it forever. Um, I think the, the CGM company that uh, I use and recommend, I'm sure they love the fact that I've been wearing it for so long. And I always explain to them, it's really more an N of one. I'm just curious to know how it impacts me, but I don't allow myself to abuse it. I, I don't check it repetitively. I know I've had a couple clients mm-hmm. who actually didn't enjoy wearing it because they were just scanning this, mm-hmm. the continuous yeah. glucose monitor throughout the day. And I was like, I scan it in the morning. I scan it in the afternoon. I look at the, at the data at night. That's all I do. And then I can kind of decide as my medication working well for me, you know, how do I feel? What's my sleep like? And, you know, that for me is always really invaluable. So I think it can be helpful. Have you, I'm sure you probably have worn them.
2: Yeah, I have, uh, I used it for uh, two weeks or so. And uh, yeah, same, same way that you uh, just learn a lot about your different responses to uh, foods. And I think that's very invaluable information. Especially yep. if you are you know, struggling with some sort of a pre-diabetes or something, then uh, that is the fastest way to kind of uh, pinpoint any uh, issues mm-hmm. and uh, helps you kind of make better decisions as well. And um, yeah, with it, with the like that, the, it becomes almost like a fun game as well. It's a like gamification. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're more as more serious about uh, changing it as well, because you, you, you know, arguably, or, you know, I- inevitably people want to have it lower. So they say they think it's always better and then they compete to get it lower so they say they eat less carbs or they exercise more and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, those things uh, which is good at least like in the short term to motivate them to uh, make uh, these uh, better decisions so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of it as well well
0: and it's interesting because there's so many different ways to lower your blood sugar in such benign ways like i tell people all the time um the neighborhood we just left there were a lot of people that would walk at dinner time and i used to joke and say to my husband this must be like the empty nesters thing that people do at night. And so, you know, when you really look at the research, like a five or a 10 minute walk after a meal is a great, easy way to lower your blood sugar. And I tell people like, we just need to be moving our bodies more. Like that's, you know, another reason, you know, the other thing I like to kind of track is how many steps I've walked in a day. Cause it really gives me a sense of, you know, have I been active and really aiming, um, one of the, the one of the pros about COVID and, and social distancing was that, The only thing I could really do outside, because at one point it was very strict where we lived, was that I could walk unencumbered. And so I really got into the habit of, you know, hitting 12 to 15,000 steps every day, which people think is nuts. But I'm like, no, I I then became, you know, I got very acquainted with getting outside in the morning without sunglasses on and getting, you know, sunlight exposure and, you know, really uh, enjoying that ritual that for me, it was a great way to start our day. And, and now obviously we we don't have as much time to do that, but, you know, always aiming to make sure I'm getting that baseline movement into my schedule, which I have people ask me all the time, like, how do you do that? And I said, I just make it a priority. Like I have two dogs and I make sure they get a mile walk in the morning. It's hot where we are right now, pretty hot for them to walk. And I always make sure they get a walk in the day and towards the end of the day. And, and you, know, you just, it all adds up over time much, you know, to like the point that we're making about all these, you know, these hacks or these little changes that we can make in our lifestyles that have a huge net impact in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how, how our lives go.
1: Hmm.
2: Are there any other like, uh, hacks or something that you use to, uh, you know, improve not only our blood sugar, but just general like health.
0: Yeah. I would say sleep is critical. I think sleep is not a sexy topic, uh, for a lot of people. They're like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead or sleep isn't mm-hmm. important. And you know, when I look back to how I was in undergrad and grad school, I I probably didn't respect sleep enough. And then I worked nights as an ER nurse. And so I really didn't respect my sleep. I was up all night long, but I think that sleep is so profoundly restorative that, uh, you know, sleep quality is huge. I mean, that's like foundational to our health. So making sure people are really prioritizing that, um, you know, getting seven, eight hours a night of high quality sleep, you know, wearing blue blockers, which is harder in the summer, but much easier in the wintertime or fall months when, you know, the days are a little shorter, you know, making sure if you're struggling with sleep, like finding out why, like it's not enough to just supplement yourself out of a crappy lifestyle. Like you really supplements are helpful. Um, and I'm a, a huge advocate of the right supplements for the right person, but the sleep piece is critical. I think stress management and obviously, Everyone in the world has had more stress in the past, you know, 16, 17 months than they did before. So finding ways to decompress, de stress, um, exercise is huge for me. I meditate. I also wear, it's actually sitting on my desk, the Apollo Neuro. Are you mm. familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Apollo Neuro is a device that you know people can wear. And you know, the, the research was done initially on PTSD um, patients but can now be extrapolated to people that are, you know, just normal non PTSD individuals. And for me, I just wear it during the day and it can be both stimulating and very relaxing. I actually wear it to bed a couple times a week and it'll turn on a cycle. And so it's just tapping, but it's, it's nearly imperceptible during mm-hmm. the day I wear it on my ankle. Um, and my kids always say it looks like a low Jack device. So looks like a home monitoring device, like I'm a prison parolee. So sometimes I'll forget and I'll wear it out to a store. And my kids are like, oh my God, you're so embarrassing. (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, stress management is critical and really dialing in on that because, you know, the stress piece, if your stress isn't properly managed, it's going to raise your cortisol, which is going to impact your blood sugar. Same thing with sleep. Same thing with, you know, your satiety hormones. I remind people um, touching on the sleep piece, because I think this is particularly relevant that if you're getting less than six hours a night of sleep, you know, based on study research, we know your blood sugar is not as well controlled. We know it impacts your satiety hormones. So you're not gonna crave broccoli. You're gonna crave crap, like cookies and salty foods and things like that. I would say just having a connection to other people. You know, I think given the pandemic, I think many, many people that live by themselves or weren't able to connect with others were really, really lonely. So finding some way to connect with others Um, is very beneficial. um, Certainly. And then, you know, just making really good, better food choices. Like we don't have to be perfect. It's always that kind of good, better, best, but I think making better food choices, like what makes you feel good? What makes you not want to fall asleep after a meal? Like that's always a sign that your blood sugar is probably not doing heading in the right direction. If you get sleepy after a meal, if you're craving more food after a meal, um, if you're craving sugary junk, you know, something's kind of amiss. And then the other piece I think is um, that's important is just being empowered. So, you know, asking for the right labs, like when you go to your healthcare provider, you know, asking for a fasting insulin, it's not weird. It is not a weird lab, but oftentimes that is the first lab that will become dysregulated when we're having blood sugar instability or inflexibility. And so I tell people it's not enough to get a hemoglobin A1C. It's not enough just to do a fasting blood sugar. It's not enough to get a two hour postprandial. You really need to be looking at that fasting insulin. And really understanding um, that that may be the first piece of the puzzle. And so, Mm. you know, I typically like to see that between like three and five or three and eight. I had a woman, you know, two weeks ago came to me and her blood, her fasting insulin was 22. I said, well, um, this would be why you're not losing weight. (laughs) And then I had to have a conversation about that. But, you know, just asking the right questions, getting the right information Um, If you're struggling with, you know, your blood sugar is looking at thyroid, making sure you're looking at, you know, hormonal pictures um, and not being embarrassed to advocate for yourself. And if you don't get the answers from one healthcare provider, that's not the end of the world. You just have to find the right person that will be able to listen and evaluate your symptoms. Um, And, you know, certainly that will help. And then eating less often, you know, we're not meant to eat every two to three hours. We are not meant to eat many meals or snacks. In fact, the word snacking Drives me crazy because that is again a byproduct of the processed food industry. And as an adult, like we shouldn't need to snack. Like if you get hungry in between meals, it's because your macros, your protein, fat, and carbs were not properly put together. And, and more often than not, it could be as simple as you need a larger portion of protein. Maybe you needed to actually add some fats to your meal. Um, something as simple as you know having olive oil and a dressing on a salad. It doesn't have to be complicated. And then, you know, the other piece is just, you know, listening to your body cues. I think that for a lot of people, they intrinsically have lost touch with what true intrinsic hunger is because they've just been conditioned that I have to eat every two to three hours. I ate breakfast at eight. I ate you know, I, I a meal at 12, I ate at dinner at seven o'clock and I do the same thing and I repeat and I eat meal like mini meals in between and drink sugary beverages. And I'm like, I think the statistic that um, I heard most recently was that the average American consumes a sugar sweetened beverage or food 16 to 17 times a day. And if you're doing that, uh, you're not ever allow- allowing yourself, your body's opportunity. give it an opportunity to, to you know, keep your insulin levels low. And, and that's really where you want them to be. You want your blood sugar to be impacted when you eat food and it to come back down again. And, and in between your body does all these magical, magical things that I'm sure you probably have spoken a lot about on the podcast uh, with regard to autophagy and Um, A lot of the intrinsic benefits, you know, ketone production, et cetera, but eating less often is critically important. Really. I mean, anyone that's at a point of of the age of 18 years old can benefit from eating less often. And I like to say it that way, because when people hear the word fasting, sometimes it freaks them out. So I just say, we're just going to eat less often and eating less often is hugely beneficial for blood sugar and health and longevity.
1: Yeah.
2: Or the uh, time where eating, eating is also a more uh, mm-hmm. like family friendly, friendly uh, term for uh, fasting.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and it's amazing. Sometimes just changing the the terminology that you utilize can make your message a bit more impactful. Mm-hmm. As opposed to people going, "Oh my gosh, I don't want to starve." Like I've had people tell me that, like they just think that intermittent fasting means you're starving. I'm like, no, 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 no.
2: Yeah. Right. Well, definitely could lead to there if you're not like. Not eating properly and uh, not eating enough protein, especially. So you do have to have like a balanced diet with the uh, right macros as well uh, accompanying it. So,
0: yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think for a lot of people, they people can get away with intermittent fasting around a processed food diet, but if they really want to garner the benefits, they have to change the way they eat. You know, you can to a certain extent at a certain point in our lifetime. I think you know people up to a certain point. And I don't want to say it's any particular age, and but you definitely, I, I was able to get away with a lot more in my twenties and my thirties than, than I am in my forties. And so I think people just have to be aware that at some point you have to change your diet. Like you can do all the things that we're talking about, but ultimately it all starts with food. Like you, you want to give your body the best quality nutrition that your budget permits. It really does come down to how critically important that is. And it might mean that you know, I I tell people all the time that when I tell people what we spend on food in my house on a given week or month, people are astounded. And I said, well, you know, we don't really eat out, you know, we're, we generally eat in, um, this works really well for us. And we prioritize this over other things. And that's just how we choose to prioritize things. But we're also all very super healthy minus my healthcare hiccup two years ago. Um, (laughs) generally we're all very, very healthy and very active and sleep well. And, you know, Do all the things we want
2: to do. That's really awesome to hear. And uh, I'm sure like the kids are going to have like a good influence for the rest of the life as well for, uh, you know, staying healthy and uh, making their better decisions when it comes to their food and and things. And uh, it's been also great talking with you Um, before I ask my last question, like where can people learn more about you and uh, your work?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so a great place to go is my website. So www.cynthiatherlo.com. Um, you can access my podcast everyday wellness that you have been a guest on twice. Um, I'm active on social media, Instagram, um, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Facebook. I've got a private Facebook community that's free. Um, it's intermittent fasting lifestyle backslash my name that you're more than welcome to join. But that's probably the easiest way to connect. And I do have a book coming out in 2022 uh, all about women and intermittent fasting. So they're, they're targeting that March of 2022. So that's coming out as well.
2: Awesome. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit that you wish you adopted sooner?
0: Oh, goodness. I think... I probably, uh, should have prioritized more sleep. I think, you know, years of working in a pretty demanding, you know, first it was ER medicine and cardiology as a nurse practitioner. I think I I would just stay up really late. Like my kids would go to bed early and I would just, I would stay up till, you know, 11, 12 o'clock. Then I'd get up at four and go to the gym. And so the sleep piece for me, I definitely probably had 10 years of my life where I wasn't getting Mm. the kind of sleep that I should have been getting. And so now that I sleep better and I put myself to bed and everyone in my house teases me and makes fun of me because I go to bed earlier uh, than everyone else because I have teens, um, I, I think the sleep piece because I, I, sleep is truly foundational. I mean, that's where it all starts from, and everyone feels better when they when they get higher quality sleep. So I probably would give myself some grace and remind myself that, all the chores and all the errands and all the things will will be there in the morning, um, but it's better to go to bed a little bit earlier and get higher quality sleep.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> sleep is yeah, pretty uh, important and uh, yes. it definitely will have like just better results in your uh, fat loss as well and uh, mood yeah. and uh, all the things.
0: Absolutely.
2: Well, it's been uh, great talking with you and uh, yeah, looking forward to your book and uh, other work in the future.
0: Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.
2: You too.